Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to Heritage Voices, episode 51. I'm Jessica Uquinto, and I'll be your host today. And today we are talking about language, community, and context. Before we begin, I'd like to honor and acknowledge that the lands I'm recording on today are part of the Nuch, or Ute People's Treaty Lands, the Dineta, and the Ancestral Puebloan Homeland. Today we have Dr. Jenny Davis on the show. Dr. Jenny L. Davis it is, is a citizen of the Chickasaw Nation and an associate professor of anthropology and American Indian studies at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, where she is the director of the American Indian Studies Program and the 2019 to 2023 Chancellor's Fellow of Indigenous Research and Ethics. After earning undergraduate degrees in the humanities from Oklahoma State University, she obtained an MA and PhD in linguistics from the University of Colorado Boulder. She was a Henry Rowe Cloud Fellow in American Indian Studies at Yale University and a Lyman T. Johnson Postdoctoral Fellow in Linguistics at the University of Kentucky. Her research focuses on contemporary indigenous language revitalization, indigenous gender and sexuality, and collaborative methods, ethics, and repatriation in indigenous research. So welcome to the show, Dr. Davis. Thank you. Thank you for um, the invitation to join me yeah, of course. I, I'm so excited to have you. As I was as I was saying before we got on the air, I have a very long list of <laughs> topics that I'd love to talk with you about. So I'm, I'm sure we won't get to all of it, but lots of good stuff in there no matter what we get to. So I'm excited. So to start us off. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What got you interested in this type of work? I started out in undergrad thinking about teaching, actually, um, teaching language and, and literature and humanities specifically. So I was focusing on English and Spanish, and, and I ended up getting degrees in English and Spanish. Um, I have always loved language and literature and all of the intersections between them. And through some of my coursework in undergrad in actually English and Spanish, I was able to take some linguistic courses, learn a little bit more about the ways that linguistics and anthropology and, and some other fields think about language in addition to the ways fields like English, right, might think about language. Um, and uh, was also starting to think about um, my community and look around and see what was available for, for us and for other Native communities. Um, so I decided to kind of move into linguistics and, and I moved into uh, ma- a professional master's on language documentation and description and through that also a, a PhD. And that allowed me to start working with uh, my, my tribe and with other folks who are interested in language and language revitalization um, and thinking about what language means in our communities, what are the kind of historical and ongoing factors that have impacted our languages and our communities and our speakers. And so it, it looks like it's kind of scattered on paper, but it actually was a, a pretty direct um, line through always 
you know, being interested about language and, and not just kind of language on paper, but the people who use and produce and, and find joy in language um, as well. Yeah. So, I mean, was that something that you were interested in before college? Was language something that factored into your life when you were young, something that you found exciting? Yeah, I think so. I, I learned Spanish growing up in part from my mom and in part in school. And so I always loved language. I love things like poetry and the creative uses of language. I had some really phenomenal teachers in high school who were, you know, instructors of teaching English, but also teaching broader kind of humanities classes. And so I always really love, I think, language and, and what it does and how people play with it and how powerful it can be. I was, you know, I love to read. I was, a, 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 well, I still am um, a, a huge nerd. I love to, to read and, and just, I don't know, participate in the world building that happens through, through language and through literature. And so it was always a passion of mine. Still love that, and I still love the days when when that's the kind of um, the kind of things that I'm getting to delve into. Uh, so yeah, I would say probably probably there were some indicators early on uh, that, that that would be a thing I was. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember taking Spanish in high school, and I think it was kind of one of the first times where you could really see that like a different culture was more than just the obvious outside differences in a culture when you'd ask a question and, you know, everyone get, would get annoyed because the teacher's like, well, they just don't say that. Or that's not a, you know, like, that's just not yeah. how that works in this language. And it's like, well, what do you mean? How can it just not work? How do they not have a word for this? Yeah. So I think language is a really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a great way to, to think about differences and similarities across communities and languages. And it's a different way to think through and get exposed to things that, that, you might not otherwise. Or I think also when we start to think about our own languages, right, there are things that we kind of suddenly pay attention to when we're thinking about the language that we might take for granted otherwise. And I love those moments. All right. So you so you go to, you know, university and then you get your master's and then you get your PhD. And then what? Well, my PhD, because my dissertation project was the um, also the, it was the basis for my first book and it was um, working with my tribe. Uh, and so, you know, I, I left Oklahoma to go to grad school to go to, um, for both my master's and my PhD in Colorado. Um, but my dissertation research let me come back home. And so I got to do an internship with the tribe early on. And then later I did uh, a year of field work um, where I lived with my grandfather and, and got to participate in those things, you know, and through that work and, and gained those skills, I also kind of figured out that, that if it was possible, I, I wanted to I loved the teaching aspect um, that I was interested in even as an undergrad. And so I pursued going into higher education in the sense of, of becoming a professor. Um, so I uh, had a, a, a postdoc and then I became an assistant professor here at the University of um, Illinois That's seven years ago now, I suppose. Um, and so now I spend a lot of my time you know, teaching and developing courses and then also still doing my research and and figuring out ways to bridge kind of the communities I work with and the ethics and, and the responsibilities there with the um, the students that I teach and the, and the things that are happening on my First, can you tell me more about your, um, your PhD project and then the book that came out of it? Uh, your book is Talking Indian Identity and Language Revitalization in the Chickasaw Renaissance. Could you tell us more about, well, your first book, I should say. Could you tell us more about that, that project that led to this book? Yeah, 
yeah, that came out of, again, kind of working with my community and then also, you know, the things that I was observing in the training that I was getting in the courses I was taking in linguistics and anthropology in grad school. And so, you know, by the time I was, I was in grad school in the, you know, mid-2000s, um, so from 2005 until 2013, and a lot of the training that I got and the conversations that I got were either thinking about languages, kind of the, the data of languages and examples from languages where you obviously couldn't see the communities because they were from languages all over the world. And even the discussions of language revitalization that I was seeing were focused on, you know, communities that were very different from, from my community. So, you know, there are really incredible examples of language revitalization if we look at Hawaii and if we look at some other communities. But I was noticing that, you know, there were things going on in my community that were different and that weren't being discussed somewhere. And so I was interested in starting to think about what are the specifics in my community and not just thinking about language itself in the sense of kind of what, what we were recording or writing down, but also, you know, why is this, how did we get here in the sense of, you know, Chickasaw has very few native first language speakers left. Um, at the point when I started my research and working with the community around this topic, I think we had uh, probably between 75 and 100. Right now, I think for when it comes to Tulip speakers who started speaking as children, I think we're, we're at 25 or, or so fewer. And so thinking about the specifics of our community and what was possible or or not possible and, and how that was different from other communities. So thinking about the context and the people thinking about the kind of how and why that would make what we're doing possible or even just impact the decisions that were being made that might not be visible to other people who weren't on the ground, but that also might be really helpful to people who were either an hour down the road or, or a thousand miles away that, you know, had some similarity. And so thinking about the, the context um, really strongly drawing from um, sociolinguistics and linguistic anthropology to think about language and, and how and why it was working. Uh, so that was that was kind of the focus. Um, it, it led me to, to think about, you know, our speakers and those efforts. It led me uh, really, I was interested really broadly in what was going on. So I think that the chapter that people are most interested by um, or in is a chapter that thinks about the role of t-shirts in language revitalization. Mm. And uh, that's just from seeing, right, well, that's that's what we wear most often, right? Jeans and t-shirts back home. Um, and so thinking about like what what are the roles things like bumper stickers and t-shirts play in um, some of these movements in our communities, and how does that help us think about language in different ways? So that's uh, that's where I'm at. A lot of it was kind of responding to what I was seeing or how, what I was being taught, and noticing the differences between the realities for natives back home and what I was reading about in kind of academic. So with your PhD and your book, was there recommendations that came out of it that, you know, either were able to be applied or that, you know, in an ideal world would have been applied in your community? Did you, was there any sort of like changes that happened as a result of, of this work? Well, you know, I think, I think probably it was the other direction. So one of the things is that I was kind of observing what, what the community was doing, what our language program was doing, and I learned a lot from them. And in fact, so there are things that people were doing on the ground 
that uh, I talk about in the book or I was able to present to other communities that have been helpful. But, you know, because these are the things that the people in the language program and that our speakers are doing kind of day in and day out, they dedicate their lives to it. I don't, I don't know that there's anything, <laughs> anything that I taught them, but they definitely taught me <laughs> the whole mm-hmm. time and I mm-hmm. think um, offered us some opportunities. Yeah, I mean, I think there were, there were a lot of conversations. It was a very... I don't know, easygoing kind of thing, but I definitely wasn't there to to, to make suggestions in in the sense of of having more experience in this than they did. Um, it was it was me kind of observing on the ground um, what what they were doing and why, and and really being mindful to ask questions about kind of what was going on and and um, making sure that I understood um, and and knew what I was looking at. I think that there are aspects that I've written about that again were already things that, that the community and, and the language program were doing but that maybe have have increased and just continued in importance um through through some of the conversations so things like the thinking about the use of technologies of the app there's a you know an apple app and there are all sorts of there's now a resistance program that the tribe kind of entirely revamped and other scenarios where they, these are things that i was thinking about and asking them about obviously they were the ones doing it and presenting about and those things have continued and so if anything you know if I've contributed anything it's just kind of asking questions and and participating in a conversation that continues and that that maybe through the questions that I ask you know shape it and shape it that way but um, they're definitely the experts in in how to do this in general and especially in our community yeah so okay we're already going to be at a break here in a second (laughs) it always goes so fast (laughs) but after the break, I'd, I'd love to talk more about, you know, you mentioned just there that that it has been, um, you know, what you learned from your community um, has been something that, you know, you've been able to take and that other communities have found useful. And I know, um, you know, this is one of the the reasons why I was so excited to get you on this show, because, you know, we've had people asking for more on uh, language preservation. One person in particular who uh, works for a tribe and they were, you know, their their tribe was hoping to do more with language preservation. So you know who you are. <laughs> and sorry, it took me so long, but finally we're having this conversation. Yeah. So just when we get back, I'd love to uh, hear more about, you know, what you learned from these elders that, you know, other communities have found helpful in in uh trying to do their own language revitalization programs so on that note we will be back here in a moment chris webster here for the archaeology podcast network we strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world one way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once we do that through the use of zencaster that's z-e-n-c-a-s-t-r zencaster allows us to record high quality audio with no stress on the guest just send them a link to click on and that's it zencaster does the rest they even do automatic transcriptions check out the link in the show notes for 30 percent off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code hevo h-e-v-o everybody in your crew identifies as either big mac burger mcnuggets or mccrispy sandwich but you're the filet fish sandwich all day that crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. 
And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And we are back. So I just asked you a very long question, but basically what other communities have found helpful uh, when you've been working on language revitalization, you know, based on your experience with your, your PhD? Sure. I think that some of the things that are helpful is, I mean, in some cases, just knowing that other people are, are doing the same thing and have the same efforts, right? So you're not alone in it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's often, you know, working in a community, can it can feel like a slightly isolated effort. Um, but so knowing other people have been and are trying to do the same thing in itself can just be helpful. I think one of the biggest takeaways from communities is often that whatever they decide doesn't have to look like what the you know, community down the road or the community that they've heard from looks like. Um, so you can really tailor things to match the resources that you have and the goals and the needs of your specific community. And that's what's going to make the best program. So, it, you know, there are kind of fads in language learning and language revitalization and you know, whether it's immersion schools or certain types of instruction, and that might be a good fit for you, but it may not. And it's just because it's not the kind of whatever everybody else is doing. Um, I think the the more tailored it is and flexible um, the project is, it, it, uh, better off it's going to be. And in fact, it one of the my favorite things that I have both read and I think as a philosophy that's really helpful is a piece by another native linguistic anthropologist who works on language revitalization. And it's really challenging that idea of success or failure. It's a piece by Barbara Meek. And it's that, you know, you want to be kind of always adjusting and evaluating and seeing how you can approach things but it's not the case of like that you are succeeding or failing in the sense this is this is a long time effort or long term effort um there are going to be things that work and things that don't work and sometimes you can't see the results of what you're doing and the outcome for 5 10 15 years and so just letting it be something that is flexible and really you can tailor it to your communities is going to be the best approach. Um, And I think it's good in terms of having a a program or efforts that really are suited to your community and then also help counter some of the difficulties you run into in trying to think of evaluating in the sense of like, okay, have we fixed language endangerment in three years? Well, that doesn't happen, right? So trying to get out of that mindset. I think uh, people speak really strongly to the importance of emotion and connection between people, between places, people and places and the language and their memories or kind of the stories of their community. And so anything you do that that celebrates that and recognizes it is going to be an important piece of it. It's going to let people approach it in a way that 
that I think is, is ultimately more meaningful. And that's a, a, often a direct counter to the ways that languages may be taught in school, right? So approaching language learning as a kind of a, a second language approach, that that doesn't always resonate with people in the ways that thinking about why they want to learn the language and learning how to tell a story that they might have heard their uh, grandmother use, right? Or a song that they heard as kids or have always wanted to learn. So again, I think it's kind of shaking off what the models that we might have around language learning and really figuring out what works for folks and what they're hoping to get out of language. That overall is part of helping to change and counter how the language is valued. You know, the U.S. government for... Uh, you know, centuries and especially for very robustly over the last 100 years has really worked to devalue Native American and indigenous languages. It has worked to sever us from access to those languages. It has worked to shame people um, who spoke those languages. And so it's, it's actually a pretty radical act just to say this language is valuable. Our language is beautiful, right? We value people who are our speakers, we value people who are learning the language or using the language. And so, again, those are more ideological shifts, but they're actually pretty radical if we think about the longer context of how we got to these moments of where our languages are now. It's a way also of, I think, including and valuing the um, elders and other individuals in our community who who have the language and who have held on to the language if we if uh, for communities that still have the language spoken in ways that bring them in and, and really center and value them. And I think that's an important piece of the project. And, and it's related to taking a kind of community and family approach. What I've noticed is that people tend to stick with the language if they are, if it's connected to either previous generations or future generations. So a lot of people are learning the language because, you know, again, it's connected to their parents or their grandparents or, or people that memories they had as a kid, but also people are often motivated because they want their the next generation right either it's their own relatives their children their nieces and nephews or or other family members or people who are teachers and instructors of of youth um, that that's often a motivation and so thinking about the language as a, an important piece of community and connection can be a stronger motivator i think than some of the other reasons why folks might learn a, a language you know if you are being told to learn a language because it's going to help you uh, become an, uh, you know, a rich international business person. They are probably not encouraging you to learn one of our languages. And so the motivation is going to be different. I, I don't know that um, learning our languages, uh, you know, it, it can be a career, right? It can be a job for folks, but I don't know that it makes anyone a millionaire. So the motivation is different and that we need to recognize that, but it opens up a lot of other approaches. And I mentioned, you know, thinking about other ways of structuring language and learning and language use. So I know communities that have involved multiple generations. So they have maybe a, a family that includes two to three generations learning together, um, that that's often a really robust way that people have reported back saying, you know, I really did learn a lot out of it. And it means that they aren't learning the language in a class and then going home and not using the language. Um, so it allows that kind of continuity to happen. And then one of the things I think that was just an interesting thing that came out of the fact that my, the research that went into my book spanned across 
gosh, I mean, more than 10 years is noticing the kind of long-term impacts of things that I think we wouldn't necessarily think of as, as having major impact. So things that were kind of passive language use. So like signs that people had up in their buildings or, or around town that over, you know, you see it once or twice, it's around, you don't think that much of it. But over time, it actually transformed people's experiences so that, you know, after a while, people had been seeing the language and reading the language now for five, 10 years, and kind of everybody had seen the language, whereas before, almost no one had, right? It wasn't available to people. And it was happening in a really passive way. They weren't going somewhere to read something in the language. They just happened to be at our tribal hospital, or they just happened to go to like the rec center or see it on somebody's t-shirt. And so those kinds of passive language absorption and language learning are pretty impactful over the long run. And they just kind of shift what people's experiences with the language are. And I'm often struck by the fact that one of the you know contexts that I looked at was the Chickasaw Nation has a kids language club, which is really popular, and it has little ones, I think, gosh, I don't know how young they are, a five or maybe a little younger, all the way up to kind of teens. And they're learning the language, doing fun activities on the weekends. But one of the things that happened over that kind of 10-year span was that little ones that were five when I started doing thinking about this and doing research are now 15, right? Um, and so then it was an ability to see that there's an, a generation, a new generation that has actually grown up with these kind of language programs in place and have grown up kind of always seeing the language around and reading it and interacting with it in that way. And that's a radical change from my generation and, and definitely generations um, older than me. So the impact is sometimes probably kind of frustratingly might take longer or, or come in places where you aren't expecting it to, but that it may be just as impactful as thinking about setting up you know, a class that people are meeting in and, and everybody dedicating their time. And so I think that's, that's one of the things that has been, had one of the, the more surprising impacts, I think, are those kind of slow burn uh, kind of results and, and slow change that you don't see until five, 10, 15 years later. Are there any projects that you've worked on since then that you've been like particularly excited about or would want to share with this audience, I guess? Yeah, I mean, I guess it, it just depends on the types of projects. So um, one of the things that I am very excited to get to do is uh, I teach every other summer at what's called the Collaborative Language Institute. And it started when I was a grad student. And the goal is to train academics if they're interested in this type of work, but especially community members in how to do do the language documentation and revitalization and, you know, language policy and change ourselves. And it's, it's a really cool project. It's an international program. So we get folks uh, from throughout the U S we get folks from Canada, and then we also get people really from kind of around the world. And I um, often teach a course on language activism. I, I co-teach it with a, um, a member of the Kisi or Gusi community, Kennedy Bosire. It's a really cool opportunity to see these kinds of skill sets and this type of work that often, you know, you had to go somewhere else. Like if you, you know, if you're me, you have to go to another state and pay a lot of money to learn those skill sets and instead see them 
operating in a way and being offered in a way that's accessible to community members and accessible to people to then bring back to our communities, right? To not have to leave the community to do, to be able to also have conversations across lots of different contexts in order to understand what's possible and, and how you might want to approach things. So that's in terms of projects, it's one that I, I really love. And there are similar programs in Canada and, and I think increasingly different parts of the world. But I think that's something that I'm always really excited about. Like, how do I take things that I gained through a formal education process and redistribute them and think about, right, like who has access to things? I've gotten to do some work to a current project I'm working on is one that is trying to get information about all of the language revitalization programs in the country for now and put all of that information together in one place and to actually put it, um, visualize it in a map so that you know, when we're interested in who else is doing this work, where are they doing this work? Is there a community whose language is related to mine that, you know, and what are they doing? Um, so really trying to take this information that's not available, that's often hard to get and hard to locate and pull it all together in one place to create some resources and, and connect everybody who's doing this work so that we aren't reinventing the wheel every time. So that communities aren't well, one, feeling isolated it is a thing that comes up quite often and that, the you know, if, if communities have resources or they have gone through processes, that that kind of information is available to anyone else who's doing this. It happens. I think the model that I think of is because back home in Oklahoma, we have so many tribes and there's often a lot of conversation and cooperation across Native communities in ways that I think are really helpful. You can call up, you know, a community next door or one a couple hours away and say, oh, I know you guys have had a, you know, a preschool immersion program. What did that look like? Or, hey, we need to have some flashcards, but, you know, we don't want we don't have enough money to put into it. Can we have the art that you used? Right. So lots of kind of collaborative approaches. So the um, mapping project we're doing right now is really the the goal is to really highlight and recognize all of these community-led initiatives to shift the narrative that says that these are efforts that are coming out of academic spaces when really they're coming out of communities um, who have been and are doing this work in really profound ways. And that also like house kind of that information all together so that people don't have to spend their time that they would be spending teaching language or, or doing language documentation or whatever they want to be doing in their communities, searching for it, right, to do a little bit of that legwork for for folks. So those are those are my two projects, I suppose I'd highlight for now. Yeah, that's amazing. Because that's also nice because that's resources for people that they can take what you're talking about and apply it. My next question, I think I want to ask about like the way people talk about language and language revitalization, the way people talk about it. Is there ways that you would like it to be reframed or if there's things that when people talk about language revitalization that you wish that they would think about it in a slightly different way? So there are a couple of different things that come to mind. One is that I think, you know, it's something that I hinted at in, in the last question towards the end. There's a tendency within kind of media or academic circles to credit and really center and highlight the kind of 
the the white linguist or the outside person who came in and saved a language or you know convinced a community to do whatever and i think that's a really tired narrative and it's never really representing what's going on and so in terms of how people are talking about language revitalization being mindful of kind of who's doing the work and where it's coming from um, and centering the communities themselves there are a number of discussions that uh, are come out of communities themselves when we think about different communities and what it means. One of them is that people often use terms like language death or extinction. And that actually is a really, it's coming out of like a, a biological ecological framework, but it's not a great one for communities or languages in general uh, for various reasons. I don't know how well it works. I mean, you know, it's complicated even in ecological terms, but, you know, there are communities that have been declared dead where their languages are dead or extinct that in fact have been able to revitalize them. And so that have been able to raise new speakers and, you know, create robust language programs and language communities. And so the better framing that people have a couple of different ideas, but one of them that I think is the standard now is to think about languages as dormant and that can reawaken, that allows for a possibility for these things to be reclaimed, that allows people to re, you know, connect with language and not have it be uh, undead, not have it be zombie-ish, right? So I'm thinking of Wesley Leonard, who's a Miami scholar, has done a lot of work on this and, and because uh, Miami is a language that uh, was dormant and is now spoken again so of course this is it's quite personal to have someone tell you your language is dead right I think thinking about the language we use is important I am I'm quite passionate about uh, the ways that people are framing always assuming an end to native people into culture so there's a scholar, Jeannie O'Brien, who's done great work thinking about the framing of last Indians and the fact that, you know, the last of the Mohicans and the last of the, it's always the last, right? And people are kind of always counting down and assuming we're going to disappear and die. And they have been, what her work shows so well is they have been since the 16th, 1700s, right? This is a thing that happens. And that's why it's part of why non-Native people always seem to be a little surprised to find out we're still alive. Um, right? They're like, oh, they're still Indians. Oh, you know. Um, and so those kinds of narratives. And what I found is that that narrative extends to thinking about languages. So there's a lot of media coverage about last speakers and counting down how many speakers are left in ways that I think, one, never talk about why we're in this situation, right? This is never a conversation about right. boarding schools. It's never a conversation about, you know, not recognition tribal sovereignty. Um, and it's also, you know, it, it counts down in ways that assume there wouldn't be people who are partial speakers or multilingual or the really complicated and exciting ways that language actually works in our communities. So that anytime it's a kind of counting down or, 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 or talking about natives or our cultures as, um, you know, disappearing any second, I think is something to, to be wary of and mindful about the work it does. It's one thing when we have conversations in our own communities about, you know, the, the situation or, or what we need to prioritize and why. And I think that's another thing when you have a kind of a broad media coming out of the settler colonial context where they're having those conversations, right? Like I think, so those are, those are yeah. some of the, some of the ones that come to mind kind of automatically 
thinking about why is this thing circulating and what kind of story is it telling about it? And I guess, you know, that discussion about the last speaker's part, one of the things that's so notable to me is that language revitalization programs have been going on in various Native and Indigenous communities for decades now, right? Sometimes 50 years if we're looking at Hawaii. And yet there isn't the same interest in storytelling about that there's no there's not the same stories about the new speakers and the languages that have and communities right that are really shifting what that situation looks like and so i think there's a, a preference for a particular story about natives and about natives through our languages that we don't see the the reverse and inverse of yeah absolutely <laughs> and on that note we are already at our second break all right. So we will be right back. Hello, it's Jim Eagle. Please join us for the Bay Area American Indian Two-Spirit Society's 11th Annual Two-Spirit Powell in person or online this year at San Francisco Fort Mason Center on Saturday, February 12th, 2022. Gore dance at noon and grand entry begins at 1 p.m. There will be over 60 vendors selling all types of indigenous products and crafts. Powell dancers from all over the U.S. will be competing in contests all day long. We'll also be having several delicious fry bread taco vendors. For more information, go to Bates.org. That's B-A-A-I-T-S.org. COVID protocols will be in effect. See you there. Okay, we are back from our break. And, you know, we've been talking a lot about language revitalization, but you, a lot of your work ties into language and other topics. During the segment, I want to make sure we get to uh, language and gender and sexuality and, you know, NAGPRA and your ethics works. But let's start with the book. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. So your your second book is called Queer Excursions, Retheorizing Binaries and Language, Gender and Sexuality. Um, so I'm really interested, you know, again, we've talked over the two segments about language revitalization, but I'm curious to hear how you apply linguistic anthropology to these other topics. So can you tell our guests more about this second book? Sure. Um, so that book, it's, it's an edited volume that I um, co-edited with uh, colleagues from grad school, Lal Zimmon and Joshua Racklaw. And it is thinking about, I think, assumptions of binaries and, and how do we um, approach language and, and studying them that way, particularly binaries of, of gender and sexuality, right? So we have things like male or female or heterosexual or homosexual or cisgender or trans, um, lots of things that are set up as kind of two oppositional, non-overlapping categories and only two categories. And so that book came out in 2014 and was really each chapter in it is thinking about that from a different approach thinking about in a different context. So we, there are chapters from various communities and contexts around the world and, and, and really, I guess, challenging us to not just throw binaries out, right? There are reasons why for communities in different moments, they might be valuable or important, but also to recognize that they are often um, kind of ideological or theoretical constructs, right, that, that are happening. Sometimes they're grammatical, um, any number of things. So it's, it's really thinking about them in that approach and how we can approach studying gender and sexuality 
and keeping them in mind and not kind of blindly either either reinforcing them or throwing them away. And my chapter in that is part of a, a longer standing project that I have um, thinking about language, gender and sexuality, particularly in uh, Native American and Indigenous contexts in the U.S. That stems and is connected to my research with two-spirit activism and two-spirit communities. For any listeners who aren't familiar, two-spirit is a uh, it's a complicated term, and, and teasing it apart could be its own, well, many podcasts. So uh, uh, more than anything, Two-Spirit, as a, it's kind of an umbrella term in the sense that it's uh, obviously a, an English term that's used to refer and to and recognize that there are a lot of identities and practices within Native communities that don't fit neatly into the idea coming out of white Western European and Christian models that say that gender is binary, it's only male or female, and it's based on a notion of biological sex uh, or the assumption that everybody is heterosexual or various things like that. So um, it's often the two-spirit community is often kind of quickly and, and identified as kind of LGBTQ natives. That doesn't get to nearly the most interesting or complex parts of it. But one of the pieces of that is thinking about like where language plays into it and why if you are studying language revitalization or linguistics and, and language, gender and sexuality, that language revitalization is often assumed to be a totally separate topic of research or interest, language, gender, and sexuality. And that was a really interesting component for me as a two-spirit and queer Native woman to because I was at these two-spirit gatherings and events and seeing Indigenous languages used all the time um, and thinking, you know, why is it that these are uh, presumed to be separate topics and things that you wouldn't dis discuss together? And, and wouldn't be relevant to, you know, discussions of language revitalization. And that's also helped me really start to think about, like, why are we not talking more robustly about things like kinship and gender and relationality in some of the language revitalization conversations? How do we make sure that language revitalization is inclusive to all of our community members and that's not reinforcing these kind of colonial ideas or, or causing people to you know, not be a part of our communities in general and in language efforts more specifically. And of course, one of the coolest things about, well, there are so many cool things about, about it, our languages, but the, there are words in our languages and ways of expressing um, and describing people that are, that are far beyond those binaries that we keep seeing reproduced, right? So you have languages like Chickasaw that doesn't have a grammatical gender. And so you don't have pronouns that are for he, she, right? You don't have things like in Spanish or French where each noun would be marked for being masculine or feminine or in some languages uh, neuter. And so really taking a moment to think about too how our languages can guide us through that process of, of reconnecting and really cherishing the, the ways our communities communities approached gender and sexuality and kinship, relationality to each other and to ourselves as a thing to study. So that's how I, I tend to think about that. The cool thing about two-spirit gatherings and thinking about it through the lens of that community and that realm of activism is that it's a inherently multi-tribal, not pan-tribal, there's an important distinction, right? Multi-tribal space. So what we see are how indigenous languages, um, how do people use indigenous languages 
in a multi-tribal space. And what I've seen is very parallel to like a powwow society, or if you're on a campus, the native student organizations, or even like an urban Indian center where you have norms of language use that are also probably pretty similar to contexts where you'd have lots of tribes in a small area, right? Where people learn how to say hello and thank you um, and those types of words in other people's languages. And that language use is not a claiming that identity for yourself, right? If I say thank you to somebody back home or hello in say Cherokee, I'm not claiming to be Cherokee through using the language. I'm in fact acknowledging that they are Cherokee by using it. And so I think it's a, a great way too for us to, to think about a context that has been under discussed or not discussed in a field like linguistic anthropology as it relates because of it relates to gender and sexuality, but use it as a lens to turn back and say, okay, what else are we not seeing? And that includes multi-tribal spaces. It includes how are indigenous languages being used and revitalized in urban contexts, right? Because that doesn't look exactly the same as rural Oklahoma. And so I, I love to see where all of the things are actually threaded together, even though they've often been assumed to be separate. Uh, early on, it seemed like they were two wildly separate projects. But uh, the longer I sit with it and think about it and think with other people about them, the more I see that they're like really strongly woven together. And that's a pretty exciting area for me to continue to see those kinds of connections. Yeah. OK, well, this very obviously very easily could have been its own podcast episode. <laughs> and I know that there's a couple of you uh, listening who are going to be very sad at me right now because you know who you are and, and I, uh, I want to make sure we get to some other stuff. But yeah, if you're, if you're interested in learning more about these topics, obviously Dr. Davis has you know, articles and this book and uh, different resources. And then also check out the museum representation and intersectionality episode of Heritage Voices. That's episode 24, which also talks about some of these same issues. So mm -hmm. sorry, guys. Obviously, I could really <laughs> keep talking about this for a lot longer, but I do want to make sure we get to talking about your work that looks at both uh, language. NAGPRA repatriation, those topics. So yeah, so let's, let's move on to that area of your work now. So yeah, currently I am pretty heavily involved in the NAGPRA work uh, at my, at my university. And in some ways it's new and in some ways it's connected to things that I had been interested in before. So I am at a university and like a lot of universities, we have some room room to work. Um, there's a lot of work that needs to happen around ensuring that any of the ancestors that are on my campus or other types of objects and collections that need to go home to communities are going home to communities and that no matter what, we're working collaboratively with tribes. So I started working on that effort uh, on my campus in 2000 and I guess it was 2017. And so we now have on campus a, a campus-wide NAGPRA office and we have a full-time NAGPRA officer who's doing really fantastic work. And so um, it's really, that happened in January of last year. So we're, we're working on getting those efforts off the ground. We're working on figuring out as a campus, not just how do we comply with this law and the specifics of the law, but how do we really rework how we're doing things on campus so that research that involves Native people and Indigenous people um, is done collaboratively with those communities 
communities, right? And with those individuals. And so that's a, a it takes up uh, quite a bit of my time <laughs> currently. And it's obviously, it's important work. It's, it's work that just came about because I was on a campus and it needed to happen, right? And it's not the kind of work that I think you can can walk away from in good conscience. So it's a, it's a thing I've taken up. It's required training in, in NAGPRA and, and other types of things. But it's also been a way of thinking about the kinds of areas where I was already interested in these topics or the, the places where, you know, indigenous and collaborative approaches that I got through thinking about how to do this with language are relevant to any other type of process with Indigenous research and especially with things like NAGPRA and repatriation. Early on, it was clear both for my community and others that there are lots of language material. I would assume that like even as much as 75% or more of the kind of linguistic and cultural documentation materials. Some of it's as old as 200 years ago and some of it was collected five years ago, right, is not available to our communities. And so they sit on the, it sits on the um, shelves of, of, you know, professors' offices or in libraries or in archives. And our communities don't know where it is and they don't have access to it. And sometimes even if they know where it is, they're not allowed to access it. And so that was already something I was interested in. How do we find out where these things are? How do we make it so that the communities themselves have access to it and so they have it? It plays an important role in language revitalization, but it's also just a kind of inherently ethical and right thing to do to let the communities and the families and the people from whom these important pieces of community have been taken from, right, to get them back and to allow people to have access. And so that transfers really directly to those processes of repatriation under NAGPRA, thinking about museum collections or archaeological collections, right? How do we make sure people know where things are located and that they're being housed and treated respectfully and that they get back and that nothing's being done with them that the communities haven't agreed to. And so that's that's connected. I think uh, my background in, in language and, and linguistic anthropology also helps me really keep in mind that the idea that something like the documentation of a song or a story is inherently different than an object or even an ancestor that's being housed. You know, if it's our songs, our stories, our languages, those are really important to us. And we often have in many communities that we have an, kind of an obligation or an expectation to care for them. You know, they were taken under the same circumstances, often through the same methods and by the same people. Um, uh, an individual that's considered the one of the founders of linguistic anthropology, and in fact, in, in North America, uh, Boaz um, was responsible for taking Native American remains while he was collecting language and cultural documentation. He he collected them without permission from communities and then used the selling of those remains to fund his research. And so I think kind of breaking down the assumption that linguistic and cultural materials are inherently different than um, something like a museum or archaeological collection or ancestors, often as a reason not to repatriate them or not to, because they don't fall under NAGPRA, is a way to apply and a place to make an intervention from indigenous ways of doing things rather than a kind of Western institutional approach um, or, or U.S. institutional approach. So thinking about 
what the connections are and like what would an alternative strategy be that actually assumes that anything that's come from a community should be, you know, you should work in collaboration with communities to repatriate and to allow access to. And and these are exciting areas that I think happen sometimes in subfields or at particular institutions, but they're not always brought together in conversation. And so the, the fact that I am doing the NAGPRA work now allows me to sit back and think about it in a, a slightly broader context. Because of course, in our communities, they're all connected in the sense that the responsibilities to objects, to beings, to ancestors are connected to language practices. They are connected to spiritual and ceremonial practices. And a lot of times those that linguistic and cultural documentation was of our ceremonies, right? And of our our important the the pieces of cultural patrimony in our communities. So they are connected. It's it's taken a slightly different approach, I guess, because of um, the importance of reconciling, um, recognizing, and really prioritizing, making sure the our ancestors get home. And so it's not to say that linguistic materials are less important, um, but there can be some, if it's necessary, to prioritize to really think about those distinctions and, and make sure that that we're trying to do everything as broadly and holistically as possible while still prioritizing, you know, the things that are of utmost urgency to our communities, like getting ancestors home. Yeah, I hadn't quite thought about it in exactly that way before. So that's, that's really interesting. We have just a few minutes left. So I just wanted to see if there was anything that you still feel like you'd like to to share with our, our audience uh, anything that you didn't get to yet? <laughs> you know, but before we started recording, one of the things we were talking about was the variety of, of approaches and topics and, and projects, I guess, that, that I've worked on, um, but I think is pretty typical of Native people in academic spaces and, and maybe even other underrepresented faculty and staff and students. And, and I suppose in just thinking about all of the topics that we've talked about, that, that that in many ways kind of represents a different approach to, to academic work and maybe to, to research in general, um, to assume connections and that, you know, each project may look separate or be different, but then as you work in it and as you have conversations, you can see the connections between them. And so that that keeping things easily delineated between academic discipline or topic is actually a pretty generative and exciting uh, approach to things, at, at least at least from my perspective. And maybe as if there are people who are considering what to study or how to approach the things that they're interested in, that that can be a way to um, hold all of the things that are important to them rather than having to feel like they have to choose between them. Right. Well, and even between, you know, your academic work and your creative work, you know, like that there's a, a lot to play with there as well. Yeah, I think I think anything that allows us to to be our whole selves and to bring all of the things that we experience and are interested in is only going to make each aspect of our of our work and our life better. Um, and so it, in part, it may involve resisting that insistence from, from whatever corners that it comes from, right? That, that you make choices or that you only do one thing or that you have to choose between research and community or academic work and creative work. That isn't necessarily the case. So to hold on to anything that allows you to keep all of those things 
at play and, and at, as part of your life. Love it. Well, all right. Thank you so much for coming on today. I personally really learned a huge amount uh, and I hope that everyone listening did as well. Well, thanks again for, for the opportunity to, to have this chat and, and conversation. It's been great talking with you. Thanks for listening to the Heritage Voices podcast. You can find show notes at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash heritage voices. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or the Google Music Store. Also, if you like the show, please share with your friends or write us a review. If you have any questions, comments, or show suggestions, please reach out to me at jessica at livingheritageanthropology.org or you can find me on Facebook through Living Heritage Anthropology or on Twitter at Living Heritage A. As always, thank you to Lyle Blanqua and Jason Nez for their collaboration on our incredible logo. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.